Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. When you picture a powerful man in your mind's eye, what is he wearing? I'm going to guess that he's wearing a suit, probably a dark color. We all remember what happened when President Obama wore that tan suit, right? Suit. Um, maybe he's wearing a fashionable, maybe even a trendy tie. Maybe he's a little old fashioned or maybe he's a hipster and he's wearing a vest. Maybe there are some wacky socks showing at the ankles. But whatever the individual touches are, the suit is the go-to fashion choice for men, whether they want to exude status, wealth, and power, or just look professional. It seems so obvious, but when you think about it, there really aren't too many other options for men's professional or office wear. The suit has been the standard of Western men's fashion with some slight alterations since at least the late 1600s. Not only that, but since the 1970s, even women, when they need to signal their professionalism, are expected to wear a feminized version of the suit. Why has the suit become the standard for professional wear? How have suits changed over the centuries? And what do suits represent in our society? And what have they represented historically? Ready? Suit up! That's a how I met your mother joke. (laughs) Giggle. (laughs) I'm Sarah. And I'm Marissa. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. So just so you know, um, I, Sarah, took the lead on researching and writing this episode, and Marissa is sort of along for the ride. So our discussion is going to be sometimes a little conversational. Marissa sometimes will jump in with information that she knows from, you know, your expertise and, and vice versa. So clothing is never just about the fabric that you use to cover yourself up. Different colors, cuts, and fabrics signify different things about you. If you dress all in black, like... Elizabeth Masaryk, and wear a spike collar. Not that she wears a spike collar, but you know what I mean. Uh, You're letting people know that you're a goth. If you wear expensive name brand clothing, you're signaling your wealth. If you dress in cowboy boots, jeans, and flannel, (laughs) like me, you're projecting (laughs) messages about rural America, country living, maybe even conservative politics. This was equally true in the 16th and 17th century. In some cases, the social meanings of clothing have been set in stone by governments. Historian David Kukta has shown that in the 16th and 17th century, social anxiety shaped the way that people were expected to dress. People were concerned that without strict laws to control who could wear what, no one would be able to tell where anyone stood in terms of social rank. For example, this quote from a guy named Philip Stubbs from 1583. There is such a confused mingle of apparel and such preposterous excess thereof as everyone is permitted to flaunt it out in what apparel he lust himself or can get by any kind of means so that it is very hard to know who is noble, who is worshipful, who is a gentleman 
who is not. For you shall have those which are neither of the nobility, gentility, nor yeomanry. No, not yet any magistrate or office in the commonwealth. Go daily in silks, velvets, satins, damasks, taffetas, and such like, notwithstanding that they be both base by birth, mean by estate, and servile by calling. There is great confusion and general disorder. God be merciful on us. (laughs) (laughs) You can just sense that guy, like, working himself up as he, like, goes to Um, first world problems. Right. It's crazy. Okay, so, yes, um, this seemed like a big problem. How could you tell who was actually rich and powerful if the nouveau riche could wear fancy clothes, too? In order to project difference, the truly rich and powerful went for an understated look. The catchphrase David Kutka uses is, Rich, not gaudy. This example comes down all the way from King James himself. In 1599, James, who became king in 1603, wrote a letter to his son Henry, who was the presumed heir to the throne. In his letter, he outlined not only how to govern well, but how to dress well. For him, clothing was inextricable from the power of the throne. Quote, a king is as one set on stage whose smallest actions and gestures all the people gazingly do behold. And therefore, although a king be never so precise in the discharging of his office, the people who seeth but the outward part will ever judge of the substance by the circumstances and according to the outward appearance, end quote. So basically, they'll judge your insides by your outsides. Right. Oh, that sounds grossly anatomical. <laughs> never mind. Um, clothing, therefore, was critical to proving that you were a good leader. A good monarch needed to balance a careful line. You had to dress well enough to live up to the majesty of the role, but not so ostentatiously that it would anger the people as a sign of overindulgence. This was the same balancing act adopted by other men in positions of power. Dress well enough to signal your wealth, but never over the top. Dressing too ostentatiously indicated that you were classless and effeminate. But although the best men followed this general rule, others ignored it and continued to dress however they wanted. Enter sumptuary laws, which enshrined in the law what could and could not be worn by certain members of the public, ensuring that you would never mistake someone for the wrong class status. Sumptuary laws had been around since about the 1300s in England, but became their most strict under Queen Elizabeth in the mid to late 1500s. Just to give you an example, under the 15. 15- 30s sumptuary law, no one under the rank of the royal family could wear purple silk or gold tissue. No one under the rank of earl could wear silk of cloth mixed or embroidered with gold or silver. No one under knight, duke, marquis, earl, or baron could wear crimson velvet, imported wool, or certain kinds of black fur. It even governed how much money certain ranks of people, certain, you know, classes of people, could spend on clothing. Husbandmen could only purchase hose of cloth costing more than two shillings per yard and garments of cloth costing more than four shillings per broad yard. The belief that certain clothes were strictly limited to certain classes of people was also tied to religion and economics. Imported fabrics, silk and velvet, for instance, were symbols of a flourishing English merchant economy and evidence that England was a part of a global civilizing process, as long as the right people were wearing those fabrics. So conspicuous consumption, or purchasing items that overtly proclaimed your place in society, became a symbol of the health of the English economy. 
At the same time, the rise of Protestant religion after the Reformation emphasized conformity. But although when we think of fashion and Protestantism in terms of the Puritans, black clothes with no frills, in mainstream English Protestantism of the 16th century, there was no specific clothing requirements. Instead, it was ruled by a desire to avoid the sin of pride. But you did not avoid pride by wearing simple clothing. Instead, you only were guilty of pride if you sought clothes that were outside of your place in society. So rich people wearing rich people clothes was perfectly fine. Right. So we we think like Protestants, like the Puritans wearing like, you know, the sort of stereotypical like black suits and weird hats right Mm -hmm. but like that's not really what the goal was the goal was to dress according to your status and that was perfectly perfectly fine if you were wearing something that was like bedazzled but you were of the bedazzled class (laughs) that was fine you know things changed in the early 17th century Despite his warnings to his son Henry about not being overly ostentatious, James I's and his son Charles I's court came under fire in the early 17th century for being financially and morally corrupt. Suddenly, dressing fancy came to be seen as, in the words of John Milton, a civil kind of idolatry. Fashion was seen as a silly luxury, and that following slavishly, the latest fashion was, in the word of historian David Kukta, like following and submitting to a woman. Definitely emasculating. Further, ostentatious clothing became associated with papism. After all, who wore the most bedazzled, bejeweled clothing but priests, bishops, and cardinals? As puritanical Protestantism grew, so did the rejection of anything considered foppish. At the same time, the rise of mercantilism, which emphasized exporting goods rather than importing them, turned imported fabrics into signs of foolish luxury. Instead, Englishmen embraced outward signs of industry in the form of plain clothing created from more simple English-made cloth. This was all gendered. Anti-monarchical Protestants saw a clear connection between luxurious clothing and femininity. William Pettit wrote that while Englishmen continue rolling in foreign silks and linens like the blind sodomites groping after our filthy pleasures, we will grow generally more vicious, soft, effeminate, debauched, dispeopled, and undisciplined than before. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. This guy was probably fun at parties. Yes. Um, In 1660, the monarchy was restored after the bloody English Civil War, and Charles II was anxious not to indulge in flashy fashion. Instead, he turned the criticisms of aristocratic luxury on their head by using much more simple clothing to signify his kingly power. In October 1666, Charles II announced that he would introduce a vest to court fashion, essentially inventing the three-piece suit. Apparently, not everyone thought that it was great. Samuel Pepys wrote in November of that year that the King of France had ordered that all his footmen wear vests, clearly a dig at what Charles II thought was appropriate royal attire. At the same time, England was still reeling from the Great Fire of London. There are several sermons linking the tragedy with the sin of trying to follow French pride and vanity. A rejection of ostentatious dress went hand-in-hand, many believed, with general fashion reform in England. So, when Charles II debuted his new style in mid-October, it not only signaled his modesty and industry, but his English nationalism and anti-French stance. And it was a hit. Mm -hmm. So, the vest was not fancy? It was fancy, like, to us. Like, if you looked at, and we'll put lots of pictures on the... the, um, the show notes to kind of give you an idea of what we're talking about. Um, 
to you and I, it looks extremely fancy. Mm-hmm. But to people in sixteen in the sixteen sixties, it was like, wow, that is so much plainer than like what we've Like subdued. Kn- yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. it, essentially, Charles's suit looked exactly nothing <laughs> like a modern three piece suit. I mean, it really looks nothing like it. Um, and again, we will post pictures on the show notes so you can get an idea of what we're talking about. But essentially, this suit still included a long flowing top coat, puffy undersleeves, large cravats, stockings, and short breeches. It did, however, also include a vest. That seemed to be the critical element of, of the change here. Um, Charles II grew accustomed to power, however, and within a few years, his clothing and the clothing of those in his court got more and more fancy, drifting away from his commitment to modesty. When James II, Charles II's heir, was deposed and replaced by King William III and his wife Mary II, it was again linked to a rejection of foppery and an embrace of thrift and industry. Are you sensing a pattern here? Mm -hmm. (laughs) This will be the pattern we see over and over again through this whole episode. And it's all very anti-Catholic. Yes. Because James was Catholic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. According to David Kukta, English aristocratic men felt they could maintain their political power by donning an everyday image of manly modesty and noble simplicity. Reducing conspicuous consumption would help to tamp down political unrest by signaling that the aristocracy was not all that different. Into the 18th century, luxury became decidedly connected to femininity, although there was disagreement over which was the luxurious and feminine party. Both the English aristocracy under William and Mary and their son William IV believed that they were the masculine ones. But Jacobites, who hoped to restore Catholic reign under James II or his son, Bonnie Prince Charlie, also believed that they were the most masculine and the English were the luxurious effetes. So it all depended on where you stood. Right, because that's the most insulting thing you can say is that someone's feminine. Yep. (laughs) Growl. Um, Into the 18th century, modest fashion, even among elites, continued to have political, economic symbolism and power. Aristocratic men believed that they set the tone for the rest of the nation and thus sought to use simple, practical clothing to help encourage industry and thrift in an industrializing nation. Again, according to Kukta, quote, in mercantilist thought, political and economic stability depended on turning virtue into habit inculcating the values of industry and frugality, while in turn, the inculcation of those values depended on aristocracy itself, end quote. 18th century English masculinity created its own fashion in opposition to luxury and effeminacy. Now, your manners became the marker of your class status, or if um, you listened to my episode on undergarments, your linens could also become mm, your marker right. of your class status. Right. Sure, a lot of people might look similar, but true good breeding was shown through your actions. It was also during the 18th century that fashion became something that was explicitly coded female. Women still followed the old customs of projecting one's class status through clothing, and this was both explained by and helped to reinforce the belief that women were not a part of the serious, masculine affairs of politics and economics. An Englishman named Jeremy Collier criticized men who dressed in fine things, but explained that it was okay for women, saying, quote, Women are by custom made incapable of those employments by which honor is usually gained. They are shut out from the pulpit and bar, from the embassies and state negotiations. Therefore, it is allowable for them to set a value upon their persons for the better disposal of them. 
And further, if they have a mind to it, they may please themselves because they are acceptable to others, which is a generous satisfaction, end quote. Ew, F you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I find that quote so revealing, though, because it's it, he believes that so wholeheartedly and he believes that women actually have to make more of an effort because their main goal in life is to catch a man, right? Is right. to get married. And right. so their appearance is actually their way of gaining honor. Right. It's their power. It's where their power right. lies. Yeah. And that is such, I mean, that continues. I mean, it probably continues in some facets to, even to today, but I'm thinking of like, I've been, I just recently watched the show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And there's this scene that is so powerful to me where she gets in bed with her husband at night, right? It's really, really late at night. And she's all made up. Like she's, her makeup is still perfect. Her hair is still perfect. She waits until her husband goes to sleep. She gets out of bed. She goes to the bathroom. She removes all of her makeup. She puts cold cream on. She puts her rollers in. She ties her hair up in a handkerchief. She gets in bed. She finally goes to sleep. Then she wakes up 10 minutes before her husband's alarm, uh-huh. goes into the bathroom, does her makeup, sets her hair perfectly, and then gets back in bed and lays there as if that's how she wakes up. Oh, my God. And I was, like, so awed by, like, the labor that goes into creating this fiction for men. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and she's, you know, a stay-at-home mom, uh, a traditional sort of 50s housewife, and that is her role, right? Right. So I just, I but find that really time, fascinating. he's kind of saying it in a way like, oh, well, women don't have to worry about this. Like, this mm-hmm. is an anxiety that men have. Yeah, and yeah. women are kind of, you know, like emancipated is not the right word, but they're excused from mm-hmm. this. Right. And so he's almost saying it like, like, oh, like they're excused from having to worry about appearing ostentatious or whatever. Yeah, because they're if... supposed to look ostentatious. Right. Well, but it's also extent. a labor to look ostentatious. Yes. Like he's, yeah. he's acting like the labor is in having the anxiety about it. Right, right. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Because men are whiny. That's why. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, just, it's true. Not it's all true. men. Hashtag not all men. <laughs> Another aside here. This is where, it, and I'm. This is I'm going to ask you, Marissa, because you know a lot more about English history than I do. But from what I understand, I mean, this signaling your ma- your status and your breeding through manners is where you get sort of the really strict codes of like accent and you know how one behaves at a dinner party and how to use the many. You know, silverware, when you sit down at a fancy dinner and there's 58 pieces of silverware, knowing how to use that, mm-hmm. all of a sudden during this time period becomes the marker of status instead of, you know, I'm wearing the grandest silk cravat. Right. People's undergarments become very important because it's well, who has the whitest and the cleanest undergarments. Yeah. So it mattered less like how, you know, foppish your your outerwear looked mm-hmm. and how ostentatious it was it was all about how clean are your mm-hmm. undergarments because that tells people you have resources mm-hmm. you have several chemises that you can take off mm-hmm. and have them laundered by some laundress or whatever right. um so that that is why in the 18th century hygiene is so important and it's part of that manners thing it's mm-hmm. like oh if you you know if you have good hygiene you know, that means right. that you are genteel yeah. and respectable. It's all about details. It becomes about, you know, being able to navigate this world of really specific details. Right. right? Because and everybody is wearing similar. I mean, the prostitute down the street is going to probably wear a right. similar dress to what your wife is wearing. Right. Um, it's because of globalization and, yeah. and the Industrial Revolution starts at this point in right. England. So, like, all of that stuff is becoming the same. And so they need something to... 
Yeah. Um, th- it reminds me too of like the the famous books of um, Jane Austen that are written in the you know maybe a few years later than this in the beginning of the nineteenth century. But you know all of this really important things about like you know being able to display your breeding because you have good piano forte skills and mm-hmm. you know how to behave when a man comes calling and like all of these things, right? It becomes yeah. all about breeding. And of course your clothing does still play a part in that, but it becomes so much about how you behave. And I think I just find that really interesting because so mm-hmm. much of that lingers, I think for us even now. Yep. The rejection of effeminate luxury in men's clothing played a significant role in the ideology of the American Revolution. Men's clothing played a part in how Brits thought about their colonial counterparts. To the British, Americans were a bunch of backwoods rubes with no chance of becoming civilized, even if they were wealthy. This is actually the basis of that goofy song that we all had to sing like at Flag Day ceremonies when we were kids, Yankee Doodle Dandy. A Yankee Doodle Dandy was an American who tried to emulate British fashions by dressing up in trendy clothes. The line, Yankee Doodle went to town riding on a pony, stuck a feather in his cap, and called it macaroni, isn't actually talking about pasta, as we all assumed when we were little kids. Um, It's a joke about Americans looking laughably ridiculous when they tried to dress like fashionable Brits. A macaroni was slang for an ultra-trendy young man who had gone on a grand tour of the continent and come back with a taste for fancy European fashion and food, including Italian pasta. So when Brits sang this song, they were joking that Americans think that they can be macaronis just by sticking a feather in their crappy cheap hats. In reality, Americans consumed tons of British-made fabric. When well-to-do colonists dressed their best, they were wearing British-made fabrics. For example, the portraits of American painter John Singleton Copley show Americans like Boston merchant Nicholas Boylston and even Paul Revere replete in clouds of expensive, fine British fabrics. Yeah. And again, we'll put some of these pictures up. Yeah. And I've, I come across that all the time in my research of Brit's... Um, saying, like, oh, my gosh, I thought America would be all backwoods. And then they go to, like, a fancy city like Philadelphia. Right. And they're, like, the people there are acting like they're royalty. Mm-hmm. And they're just, like, random, like, second-generation immigrants. You know, it was yeah. very They're not, like, strange. all walking around wearing buckskin or something. Right. <laughs> they, they sort of thought that. because, yeah. And then when they get there and they are like, oh, you have amenities here? Like, this is weird. Right. They um, were very surprised. Yeah. Um. But Americans ended up turning the insult of the backwards Yankee doodle dandy into a major part of revolutionary ideology. As part of the British Empire's mercantilist economy, the American colonists had no textile manufacturing. Because of this, Americans imported all of their fabric from England. As agitation for independence mounted, English cloth came to represent the despotic rule of the English monarchy. Benjamin Rush, who was everywhere doing everything in the years before and after the American Revolution. Seriously. I know. He, he's, I know. He's ever, I come across him all the time. Yeah, you cannot read anything about Part of it is because he slept with everyone. No. Really? Oh, my God. Yeah. He, that's a big thing. He was a Benjamin total Rush. doodle you, dandy. You dog. Um, so, Benjamin Rush, he warned colonists that, quote, a people who are entirely dependent upon foreigners for food or clothes must always be subject to them, end quote. During the 1760s and 1770s, Americans began rejecting British-made clothing in favor of American-made fabric they dubbed homespun. 
This set Americans apart visually. Um, Homespun was usually quite plain and fairly coarse, but it also threatened the British economic regime. Fabric production was really time-consuming and difficult work that required both men and women. I'm going to quote here from historian Michael Zakim. Quote, planting, harvesting, shearing, cleaning, drying, rippling, wetting, breaking, hackling, dyeing, separating, and combing, and only then spinning for three weeks and weaving for yet another to produce the six yards of cloth necessary for a plain dress, to be made with material inferior to imported goods from England or the continent. This was the stuff of virtuous politics, end quote. Their commitment to creating and using homespun demonstrated their commitment to independence. Yeah. And that was a, I mean, that was a serious commitment if you think about all of the labor that goes into that, you know, and it did. I mean, many of these things, um, you know, dyeing, separating, combing, spinning, sewing, those are all, that's all women's labor, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of this virtuous politics is requiring people that are considered unpolitical. Right. And that, that makes me rethink what I think, because coming from the British side of things to do American colonial history, mm-hmm. I always think that that Americanists kind of reject like how British people were in the 18th century or don't realize how intensely British people were. Mm-hmm. Um, but that kind of makes me rethink it, because mm. there's also this this history of this, you know, this um, immense effort to, to not be British. Right, to not right. be British, right? Yeah. It's probably somewhere in, in the middle. Yeah, yeah. We all know that part of the initial independence movement was the boycott of English-made goods, like tea or whatever. Of course, it also included pressure to refuse to purchase and use English fabrics. But historian Michael Zakim emphasizes that this wasn't just about going without. In other words, it wasn't just about not buying English clothes and making do with what you already had. The underlying idea was actually to eschew British fabric in order to stimulate production and purchase of American homespun. As colonists did so, it not only separated Britons and Americans ideologically, but also economically. It's essentially rejecting the British mercantilist regime. Right. right. So disrupting their economy. Right. Yeah. In fact, plain dress and the use of homespun became such a critical part of proving your patriotism and virtue as an American that it became a sticking point in early American politics. George Washington was extremely particular about the suits that he wore and believed that his image, including the fabrics his suits were constructed from, sent a message to the nation. Washington was also acutely conscious that he was setting a precedent for the administrations to follow. Cue a little singing from Hamilton. Yeah. Okay, get ready, go. No, now Same. I can't remember the line, but there's a there's a, a line in one of those songs that every everything that Washington does sets a precedent, right? Every American mm-hmm. experiment sets a precedent. Okay, I'll well, I trust you. I'll link to it. Okay, when he was first inaugurated in 1789, he wore a plain brown suit made of American broadcloth. However, the suit wasn't too simple or plain. The fabric was extremely high quality, for example. It might have been American-made, but it wasn't every man's homespun made on the family loom, either. The brown suit was also tastefully decorated with gold gilt buttons, and his black shoes had buckles decorated with diamonds. This was seen as the perfect compromise, a rejection of British monarchical luxury without the look of a poor, uncultured rube. 
others did not pay as much attention to that fine balance. William McClay, a Pennsylvania senator who served in Congress from 1789 to 1791, was harshly critical of Thomas Jefferson, who he accused of not dressing in accordance with his post as Secretary of State. Jefferson cared more about telegraphing his intelligence, status, and cultivation through his words and manners rather than through his clothing. McClay was not impressed. He wrote in his diary of his time in Congress of Jefferson this way. His clothes seem too small for him. His whole figure has a loose, shackling air and nothing of that firm, collected deportment which I expected would dignify the presence of a secretary or minister. Well, then... Uh, so just as a side note here mcclay's diary about his earliest days of congress uh, is so fabulous it is just full of so much shade he was just (laughs) really grumpy and he was he was like he takes down all the founding fathers a peg he's like thomas jefferson who does that guy think he is he dresses like such a bumpkin which i think is really interesting because of all of the founding fathers the one to dress like a bumpkin in my brain wouldn't be jefferson i mean he spent so much time in france that I would imagine him dressing. Who would you expect it to be? Who would dress Who would be like a bumpkin? bumpkin? Who's the bumpkin? It would be John Adams to me. But it's the really? opposite. Yeah, John Adams was accused of dressing like a king. Like not, you know, <clears throat> not as fancy, obviously, as a king. But he had, you know, designs of being referred to as a king. And he was accused of dressing really, really too nicely. Mm-hmm. Um I so know. I just think that's interesting. I think that McClay is just jealous of Jefferson's wine collection. Probably. P.O.'d. But Jefferson has had such fine taste. I know. that That's why he's so surprised. So it's surprising. Because, yeah. Right. right. Um, but also, like, I mean, how many, like, wacky people who have great taste, you know, struggle with personal mm. hygiene and putting together a, an image? You know, I don't know. I <laughs> me? Think a lot, I think no. that's a thing. Yeah, I know. Me too. I think that's sort of like a thing. I don't yeah. know. It's like that, like goofy sort of renaissance man yeah and it might might also play into the fact that jefferson was you know quite confident and you know didn't care about that um i don't know i mean i don't know i'm not a jefferson scholar by any means i just i wonder if that might have something to do with it he just didn't care what he dressed like you know he wanted people to see his brain not his you know (laughs) his suit Homespun fabric became such a central part of the mythology of America's founding that it entered into 19th century historical memory about the founding generation. Spinning wheels were dragged out and placed on the stage at Fourth of July celebrations, and speeches extolled the honors of the tireless women who toiled to make all that cloth. In fact, famous minister Horace Bushnell even dubbed the revolutionary era as the Age of Homespun in 1851, a title which stuck. In the midst of economic change, the growth of the market, the separation of the sexes, and the removal of most labor from the household, 19th century Americans became very nostalgic for household industry. Women's labor also lay at the center of this nostalgia. The age of homespun came to connote a time when Americans were at their most American, dedicated to industry, thrift, self-sufficiency, and independence. It also seemed to represent a time when women toiled hard to support the household, which seemed very attractive in a time when women still toiled hard to support the household, but in ways that were supposed to be invisible and that were assumed to be non-productive and were non-remunerative, like they didn't get money for it. Exactly. So childcare, cooking, cleaning, household management, hostessing, all that stuff. Right, yeah. And I just want to point out here, too, um, it didn't make it into the copy, but I think it's important to note that, you know, the age of homespun, the idea that there was this time period where 
American homesteads were completely self-sufficient is a myth. It's a myth that's created in the mid-19th century with this nostalgia for the founding generation. Um, There's a historian of technology named Rose Schwartz Cohen, and she writes at length kind of tackling this idea of of self-sufficiency and independence, saying that, you know, none of these households could do everything themselves. They could not efficiently, you know, harvest all of their grain and um, mill all of their grain into flour themselves, right? They they outsourced that because it made economic sense. Right. Um, that that is not because they were lazy or because they weren't productive people. It's because why do all the milling at home when you could take your grain to the mill, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. Um, they were actually very interdependent, just in a different way than what we have later on in the market economy. Right. And it's that 19th century um, sort of like Whiggish historiography, like, you know, like kind of putting the 18th century on a pedestal Mm -hmm. that makes people think that. Yes. And that's the 18th century I know – you know, it, it's not like that at all. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's very – people haven't been self-sufficient for a couple centuries, really. Right. Yeah. Or at least one century haven't really, yeah. you know, been like that. Um, but there's that whole American pull yourself up by your bootstrap mm-hmm. thing. Um, and we that, like to – yeah, we like to think that yeah. our forefathers were, you know, built this country from scratch. Right. You and know? We, it's, it's something we tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, that's not to erase the the great labor that especially homesteading women or you know, colonial women did do to keep those households running. I mean, it was an in- intensely laborious process, but women were still doing that much labor 100 years later in the 19th century. But as you point out, they weren't being paid for it. It wasn't going to market, right? And if it was, it was like, you know, they had chickens and their eggs were going to the market or they might be mm-hmm. doing piecework at the beginning of the, the century. But um, it looks very different. The association of homespun with virtue actually had a resurgence, not in memory, but in reality, in the mid-19th century, this time in the South. The differences in clothing and fashion between the North and South seem to encapsulate and simultaneously exacerbate the sectional divide. When Frederick Law Olmsted, abolitionist and landscape architect, among many other things, when he traveled through the American South, writing about his experiences in the region, he included a quote from another Northerner describing the clothing of poor Southerners. He wrote this, For the most part, the people of these regions manufacture all their everyday clothing, and their garments look as though they were made for no other purpose than to keep them warm and to cover their nakedness. I mean, I thought that was the point of clothing, but um, (laughs) the beauty of coloring or propriety in fitting are little regarded. Olmsted uh, elaborated on this quote. He says, in Ohio, in Ohio, Ohio. (laughs) in Ohio, the spinning wheel and hand loom are curiosities and homespun would be a conspicuous and noticeable material of clothing. Half the white population of Mississippi still dresses in homespun, and at every second house, the wheel and loom are found in operation. So for Northerners, Southerners' use of homespun fabrics was evidence that they were backwards. Mm-hmm. But just like the colonists did with the British fabrics, some Southerners turned that on its head. Homespun became a way to demonstrate Southern virtue and independence from the textile manufacturers of the North. An example from historian Michael Zakim, um, the graduates of a girls' school in 1861 all wore homespun dresses singing a song that went like this. Hurrah, hurrah for Southern girls. Hurrah, hurrah for the homespun dresses that the Southern ladies wear. I wonder if that's to the tune of um, the Bonnie Blue Flag. 
How's it go? It goes, hurrah, hurrah for Southern rights, hurrah, hurrah for the Bonnie Blue flag that bears a single star. I think that's to the same tune. Yeah, I'm tune. sure. Hurrah, hurrah for Southern girls, hurrah. <laughs> <laughs> hurrah for the homespun dresses that the Southern ladies wear. <laughs> hurrah! <laughs> horrible, but okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, anyway, back to suits. Remember this episode's about suits? Yes. <laughs> By the mid-19th century, men's wear was decidedly uniform. The dark-colored suit usually made from wool. But the uniformity was also the problem. All suits were all dark, and they were all fairly plain. How could the upper classes distinguish themselves from the lower? It all came down to fit. A suit needed to fit impeccably, but it also had to be versatile and flexible. Working men did all sorts of things during their day. Stand, sit, move about to adjust machinery or whatever. So suits needed to look both good standing still and in motion. A men's style magazine stated in the mid-19th century that a properly fitted garment, quote, discloses the shape of the figure and yields to the conveniences of locomation, and yes, it says locomation and not locomotion, I don't know why, without restraint to limb, muscle, or joint, and yet without the inconvenience of carrying a surplus of cloth. But this was the beginning of the ready-made suit industry. Most people no longer went to a tailor to get a bespoke suit. Busy working men couldn't stand for repeated measuring sessions, and it was difficult for people living outside the cities to get in for measurements. And in order to keep ready-made suits both affordable and profitable, menswear shops had to use cheaper fabrics. They also had to pay suit makers less, which meant that they couldn't hire high-quality sewers and cutters. One response to this was to create new patterning and drafting techniques that would allow tailors, even ones with less talent and experience, to cut more suits faster. The result was a new uniformity. Tailors bought pre-drafted patterns that fit the latest styles, which were easy to sell en masse, but took something of the art out of the tailor's craft. For the patterns to work, though, tailors had to agree to units of measure. Previously, an experienced tailor relied on his own instinct and personal style when cutting a suit and didn't measure in inches or centimeters or whatever, but in strips of paper or fabric that he could mark with a pencil. That worked just fine when individual tailors maintained individual shops and had a stable of customers that they made suits for for years and years. But now, in an age when suits needed to be mass-produced, tailors in larger clothing shops needed some standardization of measurement. So clothing manufacturers started to mimic other realms of American manufacture by the use of interchangeable parts. Obviously, there are no widgets or gizmos to interchange in a suit. Instead, the interchangeable parts become parts of human bodies. Now, tailors used a standardized system of measure, specifically the inch measuring tape. Drafting systems were sold with lists of standard proportionality. If you only took two or three quick measures from your client, you could quickly look up a list of the other measurements based on standard proportion. The male body, then, was broken down into standardized parts. The typical arm was this long. The typical leg was that long. When I'm teaching the market revolution to my students, for instance, I always use the example of shoemakers. Before the market revolution, shoemakers made shoes from start to finish. But after it, as shoemaking went from an individual craftsman's shop to a factory, it was broken down into simplified, standardized tasks. One person cut out soles, another poked the holes for laces, another sewed it all together. This is what happens to the male body during the mid-19th century. It becomes a series of standardized parts, not one integrated whole. 
I just want to offer a quick aside here because there's sort of a dark side to this kind of standard measurement. For instance, during World War I, there was a scientific craze in what was called anthropometry, where scientists and doctors took careful measurements of men trying to find the perfect normal. So like as men were enlisting in the military, they were taking like very careful measurements of their bodies as, mm-hmm. as people came through the enlistment process. But the reality was that in taking all of those, you know, tons and tons and tons of measurements, in order to find the normal, they had to create a fictional average normal that declared the the best, most American, most masculine body, right? Like they created sort of an average that didn't actually exist. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of an amalgam of all of these many measurements they took. They literally manufactured models of this perfect male body. They named it Norman. And they marketed these models to doctor's offices and used his fake measurements, Norman's fake measurements, um, to create standardized sizes on things like military uniforms and lab goggles. So like your standard, like small, medium, large is based on this normal body. Okay. Um, but this idea of normal meant that everyone who didn't fit was abnormal. Being fat or short or having a smaller penis or whatever wasn't just the natural variety of humankind, but abnormality. Of course, it also helped to further pathologize disability. How do you know what is abnormal without setting a standard for normality? And at least from the article that I read, there were... Um, Models of Norman in Nazi doctors' offices mm-hmm. or in the labs. Right. And that's – and I think, you know, now, I mean, we still have – we still have kind of norms and we mm-hmm. have the BMI scale and all right. that stuff. But I think that doctors now are trained to be – to think more in ranges. Mm-hmm. You know, so if someone's – like, I, I'm thinking because I, I saw this one – um I saw, like, a documentary. I think it was called Unhung Hero, and it was about a guy who was talking about his penis mm. was too small. So yeah, he went yeah, to yeah. a urologist, and she said, no, it's normal. And yeah. he said, well, it's smaller than a lot of average people or something. Mm-hmm. And he, she said, no, but it's normal. It's like within, there is a range of normal, and right. you are in the range of normal. And so there's nothing to worry about. Right. But he was upset because he wasn't the average normal. He wanted to be mm. in the middle of the range of normal. Right. He didn't want to be just within the range. Yeah. So I think now I think there's a kind of a movement to think more in terms of a range. Yeah. But still, people are always comparing themselves to that average, to mm-hmm. that mean. Absolutely. You know? Right. Ready-to-wear suits were the standard by the mid to late 19th century in the U.S. Clothing stores lined the streets of New York City. Brooks Brothers built a new store on Broadway that filled four floors and 20,000 square feet with 200 employees and entire departments dedicated to parts of men's suits. One for vests, one for pants, one for shirts. These stores were often quite luxurious, lined with mirrors and gas lamps and full of ornate pillars and decorations. These large clothing stores offered a respectable experience for shoppers, which was incompatible with old-fashioned shopping techniques, specifically haggling. Instead, clothes were individually tagged with standardized prices. When you talked with a clerk in the store, they might help you pick out an item or find a good fit, but there was no discussion of price until you went to the checkout counter. Clothing was so widely available that it became unfashionable to wear old or worn clothes. This was a change. For quite a long time, people wore their clothing to death. When an article of clothing became shabby, they would simply wear that coat or that shirt during the day or to do household chores. 
Now, the standard was to look sharp all the time. Part of this was a change in the nature of labor. More men were doing white-collar work, which required a constant presentation of respectability. And the term white-collar was quite literal. In order to cut down on laundry and make their shirts last longer, men's shirts came without collars. Instead, you purchased your collar separately so that you could just detach it, wash it and starch it, and your shirt would look just as new. And and by you, I mean the woman in your life or your <laughs> laundress, right? Like you were, that was not you something. You were not doing that. No, you were not doing that. This was especially important in the summer when you were expected to wear just as much clothing as during cooler months. I mean, you might wear a different um, weight of fabric, but mm-hmm. you weren't like going around in, a, in like shirt sleeves. Right. You know, you you still had to wear a suit. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you got sweaty and gross, you just popped your collar off and switched it out to keep you looking fresh and clean. Well, barf. At least your collar. Yeah. The rest of you might look soaking wet. Your neck is like the least sweaty part of your, (laughs) at least for me. Like, I I can't imagine what their armpits smelled like, to be honest. Oh, my God. I know. Um, Just like in decades before, men's clothing had powerful class meanings. Now that suits were standardized, conformity became really critical. Men had to look well put together, with none of their clothing worn or tired looking, and they had to match the current styles, and they had to follow the rules of the day. Um, In Mad Men, men had to unbutton their suit jackets every time they sit down because it's too tight. Oh, I thought that was, like, the standard. I thought that's what people... Well, that's why it's the standard. Oh. It's because it's too tight. Because the But also, the they're, not doing, they're not doing work where they have to, like, move like this. So mm. they just stand like this, and they can't mm. even, like, lift their arms up or sit without unbuttoning their coat. Because the, the fashion was to have that very slim, yes. tight cut. Okay. Very, well, at least in the 60s. That, yeah. like, Beatles, like, that's very I mean, slim right? um, tie and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's... I feel a lot better about my blazers i know me too same (laughs) same that's really interesting because i know that like now um like you know that's the the standard like you know my husband wears a suit almost every day and you know you unbutton the button when you sit down or you take the the coat off altogether but right and that's that is the convention because all of a sudden you're more um what's the word less formal because you're sitting yeah yeah Yep. And and then when you stand up you button it again yeah like a woman walks in you stand up button your coat yeah. And then the woman sits down, and then you unbutton your coat and sit down again. It's Interesting. Sounds very elaborate. Yes. But um, a well-dressed man had to know when to wear a dress coat as opposed to a riding coat, and when to wear a tie, and when to wear a cravat, or how to dress for breakfast, and how to dress for dinner, how to dress for a formal dinner. But it's also critical that they not stand out. The idea was to be well-dressed in such a way that no one could actually notice that you were well-dressed. According to Michael Zakim, fashionable attire avoided calling undue attention to itself by corresponding seamlessly to the standard. And that's like, that blows my mind because mm-hmm. that's like when I dress up, I'm like just trying to not look ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like that's my main, yeah. I just want to blend in. Uh-huh. And like the worst thing in the world is if you're overdressed and you go oh to a wedding gosh. and everyone else is wearing like summer dresses yes. and you're wearing like a effing gown. You just right. look ridiculous. Yes, exactly. That's so. like the nightmare scenario. Yeah. Like I'll, for example, every year my husband's office has a Christmas party and my husband is like insistent that it should be black tie like it should be an extremely fancy event but everybody else at his office is like well I'll look nice but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dress in a tuxedo to go to this like restaurant and have a nice dinner like we're gonna dress appropriately right but my husband is insistent that we have to be extremely fancy which means I have to be extremely fancy (laughs) like I don't care what he wears because he can wear whatever he wants but he's always like this year we actually like looked at gowns together on Amazon and he was like pointing out all of these things that were like I would wear to like 
a ball at the White House. Right. Like, like prom dress type fancy, mm-hmm. you know? And I was mortified that I was going to show up dressed like, you know, yeah. Meghan Markle or like, yeah. you know, the Duchess of Cambridge or something and everybody else would be wearing, like you said, like a cute holiday dress that they got at Target mm-hmm. or right. Old Navy or whatever, you know, right. and I'm like... Dressed like the queen. Yeah, it's the weirdest feeling. It's because uh, then you think that people think that you think you're more important than right, them. Or yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. very weird. Yeah, because for a lot of really wealthy people, it's not actually wearing the fanciest dress is not the signal that you are the the wealthiest person there. It's wearing something that's like, you know, nice, but you bought it at, you know, Macy's. Right. Do you know it's what like I mean? The like most it's appropriate. Sort yes. Of, it's like yeah. the nicest version of what you would get at Old Navy, but right. they got it at, you know, it's Ralph Lauren and it cost $500 and your version was, you know, right. we're going into the weeds here, but. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Okay. But yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, the, what we're getting at here is that the thing to avoid was going to an extreme, whether the very well-dressed extreme or the extremely underdressed extreme. On the very well-dressed end of the spectrum was the dandy, who dressed in overtly fashionable ways. Tight vests, small coats, trendy colored or patterned pants, sometimes even corsets to create the silhouette of a large barrel chest and a wasp waist. On the other hand, oh, I'm going to interrupt myself here. Perfect example of the dandy, and I'll try to post pictures, is Beau Brummel, um, who was not American. He was British, um, but who was known for... Not dressing over the top, but, like, paying extreme attention to how he dressed. And he was known for being a, a well-dressed man. Um, and so the dandy was kind of an extreme version of a Beau Brummel. Mm-hmm. Um, also reminds me of Annie. Your clothes may be Beau brummel They stand out a mile. But, brother, you're never, never fully dressed, dressed without a smile. You're never fully dressed without a smile. Oh, my God. This is the worst episode we've ever done. Okay. It's the best. Um, who cares what you're wearing <laughs> on from Main Street to Saville, Saville Road. Road? It's what you wear from ear to ear and, and not, not from head to toe that matters. matters. Okay. <laughs> Just had to finish the stanza. Yeah, that's right. it. Just had to get that in. All right. Okay. So many complaints about this episode. All right. Um <laughs> On the other hand, a Bowery boy was the exact opposite. Boys didn't give a shit about what was acceptable or trendy. They wore whatever color they liked best. They didn't try to match anything. They wore things that were either terribly out of date or were incredibly garish or incredibly tacky. So it wasn't just that these two different sides of the spectrum were tacky, but that they broke the standard. Their major sin was that they asserted their individuality. Mid-19th century suiting up was about conforming, not about standing out. Mm. Both dandies and Bowery boys made it obvious that they spent time and energy thinking about what to wear and how to present themselves. In other words, they were like women. Women were the ones who were concerned with fashion, not men. Now, what's ironic about this is that men did have to be concerned with fashion. It's just that they had to make it seem like they weren't. The goal was to cultivate a look that was perfect, but that didn't stand out from the norm and that suggested complete disinterest. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really critical point because men did have to know the rules of clothing. They did have to know as Marissa said earlier, when to wear a certain weight of fabric or when to wear a certain type of fabric. or When to wear an ascot, when right. to wear a bow tie. Like, th- there, were, there were the same strictures of clothing for men as there were for women, but men had to act as though they were completely unaware of that. It had to be sort of 
effortless. If they paid attention to that, then they were a dandy, right? Mm -hmm. If they were putting energy into, you know, the fashions of the day, then they were a dandy. And I there, I think there's been a little bit of a resurgence of this in recent years with like the 10, 15 years ago, the metrosexual, mm -hmm. right? Men who um, were heterosexual, who were straight, but who put a lot of energy into how they dressed. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the beginnings, I think, of um, a, a more modern way of, of men asserting their interest in fashion and being more open about it. Um, mm -hmm. And then people criticizing them for doing something that is too womanly or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, there's this country song that um, I listen to a lot that's about this guy who um, he's taken his, his girlfriend out to a club or something, but he's going to wear his boots, his cowboy boots. He's like, there might be a little mud on my boots, but I'm we're still going out tonight. You know, it's this kind of opposite of the metrosexual. Like, I'm going to wear my muddy boots, but I'm still masculine. I'm going to take my woman out on the town, um, but I don't give a about what I look like. Anyway, so by the mid-19th century, uh, as we've said before, the three-piece suit was the men's clothing style. It had been more or less the standard in Europe and North America for white people for centuries. Of course, there were some changes from the 18th century style of breeches and hose to the 19th century version of long pants, vests, and top coats. It wasn't the standard in places like the Middle East or in Asia. Western-style clothing, which just means essentially suits, became the way to indicate civilization. It also became the clothing style of choice for imperialism and civilizing missions. In 1746, for example, following the Jacobite Rising in Scotland, which was led by the Highland clans in an attempt to restore the Catholic James II and his heirs to the throne, the British Parliament passed the Dress Act, which made it illegal to wear the traditional Scottish kilt. Instead, Scottish men had little choice but to wear British-style suits. In other countries, leaders wanted to use dress to indicate that they were just as civilized as mighty European empires. For example, in the 1860s, the Meiji Restoration in Japan came with clothing reform designed to bring the Japanese empire into accordance with Western empires, specifically the British and Japanese, the, the Japanese court began requiring that everyone wear particular kinds of suits mm -hmm. that, of course, look almost as, exactly the same as Western suits. Similarly, in the 1920s, Ataturk, the young leader of Turkey, passed a series of dress reforms designed to get Turkish people to stop dressing in ways dictated by the religion of Islam and start dressing like Westerners. So in the 19th, the mid-19th century, men's suits were large. They were larger. Mm -hmm. They were um, they sort of fit differently. Yeah. And you can even see, like, sometimes, even in, like, the 1920s, it was like, like you can see, have you ever seen... Death of a Salesman or, like, anything. That's the 40s, but yeah. Oh, whatever. Okay. <laughs> That's the 40s. But yes. Okay. No, like, just, I, I'm trying to think of something where the main character wears a suit. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, the suit pants are, like, up to your boobs. You know, it's, like, Like, so any classic bizarre. Hollywood film, right? Like, yeah. Humphrey Bogart, exactly. Suit, his pants are super high. His tie is really short and fat. Right. Yeah. Real, mm -hmm. yeah, really mm -hmm. wide. And then the, you know, the shoulders are, like, mm -hmm. sort of sloping mm -hmm. and, like, sort of seem like the suit yeah. is too big for them. Double-breasted. Yes. Yeah. Double-breasted, which is such a weird look mm -hmm. but yeah that was the style and, and then you go all the way to um the 1960s and you think the madman style with the really skinny ties mm -hmm. and the very tailored suits with um the shoulders of the suits the seam is like right at the top of the shoulder and mm -hmm. and how i mentioned to you before that makes it so that they can't even really sit down yeah. without like you know yeah uh straining that fabric so they unbutton and sit down and that yeah. becomes the convention and again that's i mean all about what kind of bodies we're trying to emphasize or emulate, 
right? I right. mean, Humphrey, this is something that cracks me up about classic Hollywood. Humphrey Bogart was a short man, really. I mean, he wasn't particularly tall. He wasn't like hunky and, you know, he wasn't like, uh, what's his name? Like Chris, what's his name? Hemsworth. Hemsworth. You know, he wasn't like a Thor, mm-hmm. um, but he was like, you know, a major Hollywood film star, but he was kind of like a short, normalish sort of sized man. Um, and that was okay. Like that was, that yeah. was a well, style was like, in, the, in the 40s. And the, in the 40s, it was really popular if you were like the neighbor, you know, the, the neighbor boy next door sort mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah, he was like, not that, but yeah. No, but you know what I mean? Yeah. That was also super popular. So you weren't looking for some, you weren't looking for someone like dashing. You were looking for mm-hmm. someone like kind of sweet and mm-hmm. like blonde headed and blue eyed mm-hmm. sort of. And so the, 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 the like tab of... hunter or something is what I'm thinking. Yeah, like yeah. very like, you know, yeah, boy next door. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Yeah. But he's not like super masculine. He was like pretty skinny yeah. and like cute looking in the face. Not like Thor once again. Right. But, but then as the, our ideals of like men's bodies change, the, the clothing that is required of them change. Like you mentioned in the sixties with Mad Men, right. It's like a very modern, crisp, slim suit, right. With like mm-hmm. stovepipe pants, mm-hmm. thin ties, um, and then every once in a while, we have real disruptions to that. Like, I'm thinking of the 70s in, like, the leisure suit. Oh, you know, gross. like the yeah. the um, John Bee Travolta. Gees? Yeah, oh. like, the, well, yeah, the Bee Gees, <laughs> but, like, the John Travolta, like, that kind of unbuttoned, showing off your chest hair, like, big lapels. Yeah. Um, such a departure from the 60s, you know, look. And your, like, chain necklace or whatever. Yeah. And, and then, again. Flared pants. Right. Oh, yeah, bell bottoms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, even I think right now we're seeing another disruption to this, which is, you know, the Mark Zuckerberg sort of look, which is, um, you know, pants and a T-shirt and hoodie. And that's what, like, you know, the Silicon Valley tech bros, that's mm-hmm. what they can wear to work. And that's sort of disrupting, like, their dads had to go to work wearing a suit and tie. However, what I think is really important to know is when Mark Zuckerberg had to take his little skinny hiney mm-hmm. to Washington, D.C. and testify before Congress, what was he wearing? A he was suit. wearing a suit, yep. right? When it comes down to it, when men need to present themselves professionally um, and to signal their respectability and their power or whatever, mm-hmm. um, their masculinity, they have to wear a suit. Right. And, it, yeah, I mean, I – but there is this general sort of deformalization of – menswear lately i think lately meaning like the last two decades or mm-hmm. something my husband mostly wears uh hanes v-neck uh white undershirts as his shirts like every day right. like that's what he wears <laughs> he's a chef so he has a chef coat that he wears over them but he that's like his day wear and i remember one time um my old advisor in undergrad the old advisor for the school newspaper i was the editor we all went out for like a dinner like a you know school newspaper like celebratory end of the year dinner or whatever and my husband came cuz he said hey bring your partners and my husband was wearing his normal v-neck thing and a pair of jeans and um all of us were just wearing jeans it was this was not fancy we went to like a buffet like this was not and he the he was blown away that my husband was wearing an undershirt like he thought it was like so inappropriate he wasn't mean about it but he was just like are you wearing an undershirt? Like, aren't you supposed so to wear weird. those underclothing? And my husband was just like, I just wear these as T-shirts. You know, so, so it's... so funny. But he was old. I mean, he was older. Yeah, he was probably yeah. almost 80 or something. So he was yeah. just like, he didn't understand right. how that was acceptable. It's sort of like when we were in high school, like, you could wear pajama pants to school. And people were like, mm-hmm. how can you do that? And mm-hmm. it's like, well, what's the difference, really, between mm-hmm. loungewear and casual wear? Really, what's the difference? Like, right. we, we're kind of sort of doing this, like... 
you know, thing. And now you can go to a wedding without a coat. You can go just like with maybe a tie mm-hmm. and your shirt, mm-hmm. maybe a tie and a vest and a shirt mm-hmm. without the jacket, right. or yeah. just a tie and a shirt. If it's like a summer wedding, just yeah. tie and a shirt with your and sleeves rolled up. Sleeves yeah. rolled up, and like that's acceptable. Very cute. Look. Very good look. Yes, I like that. <laughs> I agree. I also think that as part of this as you say, relaxation and sort of codes of what men can wear, depending on the situation, I think. It depends on the situation, right? Mark Zuckerberg did not roll into Congress wearing his typical like hoodie right. combo, yeah. um, depending on the situation. But I there is, as part of this kind of relaxation, also been a relaxation for men that doesn't necessarily translate for women. I think in some cases, yes. I mean, the rise of leggings, Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. We are all wearing No, je- I am wearing jeans. Jeggings. Well, no, they're jeans? actual jeans. Oh, okay, fine. With they're a button? With a button. Wow. But with, so yeah. Avril and I are both wearing leggings. I try to wear leggings as, as often as physically possible. <laughs> um, but I couldn't, I could not wear this outfit. I could not wear leggings to a, an academic conference, right? I couldn't, I wouldn't put my, my picture on my department website wouldn't be me wearing a hoodie. Or mm-hmm. the Mark Zuckerberg look. Yeah. Um, I got really frustrated a few years ago when Mark Zuckerberg posted a picture on Facebook that got a lot of play. Like, first day back to work after his paternity leave, what should I wear? And he posted a picture of his closet. And it was, like, 15 identical hoodies. And I was livid because I thought, having come back to work after whatever kind of versions of maternity leave I had, if I had rolled in wearing a hoodie... Everyone automatically would assume, like, oh, she's not taking care of herself. Yeah. She's not pulling it together. She She must be overwhelmed. She's let herself go. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Women can't get away with that same kind of thing. Even if I'm wearing leggings, I still have to sort of, you know, there's been this no leggings as pants, right? Or you need to wear something that covers up your your butt and your front, right? Because Mm -hmm. otherwise people might know that you have a vagina or or whatever, (laughs) you know. Um, It. There's there's still kind of standards. There's a double standard there in what men can wear versus what women can wear. And you see this at conferences, too. You know, yeah. men kind of roll into the conference wearing jeans and a and a, like you say, a button down with the sleeves rolled up. Mm-hmm. And I'm there, you know, in a dress and a blazer because I need to work harder to be seen as professional, whereas men are assumed to be professional. Yeah, but I also fight back against that. I think like 20 years ago, you know, jeans were like the ultimate like that is casual. Like any kind too of denim, casual, yeah. denim is casual. It doesn't yeah. matter if you have a nice shirt; it does, it's too mm-hmm. casual. But now people don't feel like that. I mean, there are right. tons of professors who have distinguished jobs who mm-hmm. wear, you know, jeans and like a nice shirt and like a blazer to teach. It. Totally yeah. normal. Yeah, and nobody thinks that's weird. And at conferences, I try to wear jeans, sometimes black jeans. I don't know, but mm-hmm. I try to wear jeans to most of my conferences, mostly because I'm just comfortable that way. Mm-hmm. And I'll wear a blazer, but. You know, I I think exactly. 20 years ago that would have been unacceptable. Yeah. And, like, it used to be a thing where, like, denim was, like, you know, weekend wear. And, like, you wear that when you ride your horse or whatever. You don't wear it when you are sitting at an academic conference. Yeah. But no, I think that's changed. No, I wear jeggings um, now to, to conferences. Yeah. All right. That's all on suits for today. I think we've sort of talked about suits as much as we can without <laughs> and we've kind of talked about not suits that's also. true that's true <laughs> all right so um if you uh want to you can follow us all over the place twitter facebook pinterest instagram um join our facebook hangout group dig history pod squad we have no, um just in- search for it on facebook i think is probably the best and we have links to our show notes and transcripts for the episodes um 
in the uh, episode description. And I'll make sure that uh, uh, the pictures that we talked about of the different kind of suit styles and whatever will be in the show notes as well. Digpodcast.org. Go there. Okay. All right. I'm Sarah. I'm Marissa. Bye. Bye. Did I say that wrong? No. Oh, it's felt wrong. <laughs> Luxury and, yeah, I don't know. It, sound, it just seemed wrong. It sounds weird when you say it. Effeminacy. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it should be effeminacy. Yeah. Maybe that's like it feels like it should be that. Oh, no. We're mispronouncing words. Oh, my God. We must be morons. (laughs) Lock me up. (laughs) Um. (laughs) For him, clothing was inextricable. (laughs) Inextricable. For example, this quote from a guy named Philip Stubbs. Did I say Philip or Philip? Who was an gentleman? <laughs> who was a gentleman? Who was? Oh yeah, who was a gentleman? I'm sure. An H three, three H? No, what's it called? Four H. Four H. Oh my god. <laughs> April, would you never mind. Cut that out. Yes. <laughs> Do you want me to start? <laughs> no. H three. What the fuck? You you. I waited till you were done with politics. Okay. So just. No. Yeah. No to real pants. I'm driving somewhere in public. What? No, you can just wear those. Yeah, I'm gonna go to the movies after. She's wearing leggings. Yes. Yes, you would. Wouldn't you? You would wear those.